Praise God, you guys. Uh, scripture I went through in the Christmas party uh, just a week ago or so. Uh, such a powerful scripture in 1 Timothy 1.15. Uh, Paul's thanks the Lord Jesus Christ and says it's a faithful saying worthy of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of which I, he said, am chief. And he goes on to say that he saved me, the chief of sinners, so others in the future, so others would know that they too, if they come to him, they too could be saved, amen. And we celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ came into the world and that we have an awesome savior. And this is something I think uh, we should be I mean, we celebrate so many aspects of Christ, amen? But one of the most important aspects, I believe, to get excited about is the fact that he was incarnated, the incarnation, that God at literally became a man, okay? That right there is hard to get your brain around, amen? That he became a man. And I've literally been uh, kind of juggling two or three messages uh, for this Sunday, praying and wanting the Lord's heart, you know? And uh, I believe I received a strong answer. Uh, we, but a lot of the emphasis in one of the messages I worked on, which will hopefully be for another time, was looking at the fact that he became a man and what that looks like, not only on his birth and his humanity as the God-man, but uh, also what it looks like throughout eternity. Because Jesus is still, God is still God and man, amen, in his physical body. It's a blow mind. And when you look at some of the terms that are used, it's a Christmas message that had, I don't think it's been preached yet, which is kind of strange, the contrast I was going to bring because it was something that I hadn't seen until just recently. And I look forward to getting that another time because when you look at some of the terms that contrast with other terms, it's like, whoa, Lord, look what you're saying about what your son not just went through on the cross, but for the rest of eternity. It's pretty amazing. But uh, the answer to my prayer, I believe, because it came pretty strong uh, at a certain point, when I was like, Lord, you've got to make it clear to me because I love both these messages. And there was a third one. And this was kind of an aspect of the third one uh, that became the first one, made it three, really. So this is one message. And uh, it's short and sweet. Now, when I say short and sweet, that means hopefully on time, right? <laughs> Easy to understand. Hopefully it'll be a blessing to you. This is called Christmas in Egypt. Christmas in Egypt. And this is a Christmas present to so many of you who love typology how there's so many pictures of Christ in the Old Testament. Amen? And uh, I've had different people coming to me, man, you know, because we used to do a lot of typology on our Good Fight radio program. We're like, man, I missed the typology. Can you do more typology? More than one person, different people. I'm like, yeah, we'll get back to it. But our format changed, you know. We used to have uh, several uh, teachings a, a week. We did four short ones, half hour each. Now we've got one our one along with the, all the other stuff we're doing. So uh, it's really hard to get them in. So well, that's good news for Sunday and Wednesday though because we get more typology here because that was my typology outlet for a while. And it's like, okay, back here. And so Merry Christmas. This is one of the presents uh, the Lord will bless you with, hopefully all of you. And when we talk about typology, in case you're a newer Christian or you're not familiar with the terminology, uh, when we talk about typology, tupos is the Greek word. It's translated type in the New Testament. There's other words that have to do with shadows or uh, things that foreshadow Christ, that sh shed light on who he is and what he'll be like and what his ministry is and, and what the events will take place in his life before he came. Okay? Hundreds and hundreds of years before he came. Amen? Hello? Hello? <laughs> hundreds of years before he came. So it's interesting uh, when you think about typology, it's such a blow mind because God of the Bible says he's the God of prophecy. 
That's one way he proves his existence. That's one irrefutable way he proves his existence. Because he says, I tell you the end before the beginning, you know, and from the beginning. In Isaiah 40 through 47, those chapters there, man, over and over again, at the end of 47, he castigates, comes down on uh, the magicians, astrologers of, of Babylon because they can't tell the future. They can't even save themselves from the flame. They don't even understand what's going to happen in the future, and they can't deliver themselves. Yet he's the one true God, and he tells the end for the beginning. And he says, that's how I prove I'm the one true God. If you look at Islam and you look at the Quran, there's no emphasis on prophecy in the Quran. Of course not. It's not from God. If you look at the, the Hindu Vedas, you know, the Bhagavad Gita, so forth, you don't see an emphasis on prophecy. Man, this book right here, about 26, 27% prophecy. That's amazing, isn't it? According to Payne's Encyclopedia of Bible Prophecy, I think he's got a, like 26, 27% of this book is Bible prophecy and actually lists the prophecies. Pretty amazing. So if you're a student of the Bible and you say, I'm a Christian, I'm into the Bible, then you're a student of prophecy to one degree or another because it's a lot of prophecy. Well, we love prophecies, but some of my favorite typo my prophecies are typologies because typologies are where God takes an event in the past and through his sovereignty orchestrates it in such a way that it foreshadows and prophesies, depicts a future event, the type. It's a type, it's a picture of the antitype, which is a fulfillment of that picture. It could be an event. It could be a place. It could be an institution. It could be an, a, a commandment or an edict, or it can be a person. There are several persons who are a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of my messages that I considered doing this Sunday was going to be showing you Christ's birth over and over again in the Old Testament in picture form through different personages that were pictures of Christ and the events of their births that foreshadowed Christ. I don't know. I'm sure someone's done that Christmas message in the past, but I hadn't heard it yet. And I thought, ah, that, that, but you know what? The breadth of it was just too much. It was like, there's so many beautiful pictures here of his birth. It's just sublime. It's beautiful. It's heavenly. It's like, wow, Lord, look what you've done here. Because if I get into those births, then I have to tie that person to a degree, in case people don't know how that person is a picture of Christ, and show some of their life too, along with their birth. And I'm like, well, Lord, that's a long, long, long message. I mean, I could do it, but I'd be like leaving a lot of meat on the bone. And I know it's not Thanksgiving, it's Christmas, so we could do that. But I thought, I kept praying about it. And I literally, after seeking the Lord and crying out to him, one morning, boom, I woke up and this message was in my heart to emphasize this message. And this is Christmas in Egypt, a typology. And it's amazing because Moses is this incredible picture of, of Jesus, a type of Jesus. In fact, he's a type and it pictures so much of Jesus that we're going to be looking at his birth mostly today and things surrounding his birth and his, his infancy and his, his, a little bit of his adolescence just today. One message. But I'll have to do another message later on. Maybe it'll be the New Year's message, we'll see, on his life. Because there's so much about Moses that's a picture of Jesus. And God intended it that way. God intended it that way. In fact, it's interesting because uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, Moses said that there would be one in the future that the Lord would rise up a prophet like unto himself. He understood that there's someone coming in the future that he was in some way a picture of. And that's quoted, alluded to, referred to in Acts chapter 3. By the way, 
Muslims say, oh, that was Muhammad he was talking about there. No, it wasn't Muhammad, you know. In fact, it's quoted in the book of Acts as being of Jesus. Just like they say when Jesus said, the helper will come, the paraclete, you know, who will be with you always, right? They say that was Muhammad too. That's a prophecy of Muhammad's coming, not the Holy Spirit. Lies from the pit of hell. In fact, you read the book of John, you read the promises of the, and Luke, and the, that they'll be endued with power from on high by the Holy Spirit and so forth. Then you read the book of Acts, it shows that this was a fulfillment when the Holy Spirit came upon them. It wasn't a prophecy of Muhammad, was it? But Moses says, in 1815 of Deuteronomy, the Lord, your God, will raise up to you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. So the first parallel is, number one, is Moses was an Israelite who God used, right? And he was a picture of Yeshua, Jesus, who was also an Israelite. 1,500 years later. Number two, that's the first. I'm going to give you 10. Number two, the scriptures emphasize that Moses was an especially beloved child of God. In Acts chapter 7, verse 20, it says, it was at that time that Moses was born, and he was lovely he was lovely in the sight of God. Isn't that interesting? Well, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, what happened as Jesus came up out of the water? That was not a little bit of sprinkling, man. That was immersion, right? When he came up out of the water, his baptism, the Holy Spirit came upon him like a dove, right? You have the, the Holy Spirit, you have the Son, and you also have the Father, the whole tr trinity right there at his baptism actively there. And we read in verse 17 of chapter 3 of the book of Matthew, and a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. He was especially beloved. He's the only begotten son of God. Amen. But he was especially beloved of his father. Okay. Now it's interesting. Number three is the circumstances of Moses' birth. He was born an Israelite, especially loved of the father, while the Israelites were under the domination and oppression of a hostile Gentile power, namely the Egyptians, right? Those were heavy circumstances to be born under. Guess what? Jesus, when he was, came 1,500 years later, he was born under the oppression as an Israelite, under the oppression of a hostile Gentile power. Not the Egyptians, but who? The what? The Romans. Both were power-hungry, both were brutal empires uh, that we read about throughout Scripture. They're both in bondage. They're both in servitude. They're both enslaved. A lot of the Israelis' money that they uh, got during work went to the Roman Empire. So it's interesting uh, number four, you're like, man, this would be Joe's shortest message ever. Almost halfway through. Uh, not really. Moses' birth was designed to save people. Amen. Moses became a savior. He saved his people. God used him, of course. It was the Lord God through him. Saved them from Egypt. Amen. Huh. Is there anything about that that rings a bell with Jesus, guys? <laughs> Some of these are just so obvious. 
A number, you know, Luke chapter 2, verse 11, in reference to Christ's birth. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Okay? Just the, the term, the name Jesus, right? Yeshua speaks of God being salvation. That's what his name means. God is salvation. Wow. And he was called to be named, uh, well, that's tied into the Emmanuel prophecy, which is quite interesting. Aren't you glad you have a Savior? Amen. We all deserve damnation. We all deserve to be separated from God in eternal darkness forever and ever. Praise God. What an awesome. Man, you ought to be way excited. You know, because of who Jesus is and what he's done in your life, that should transcend anything you're going through right now. You could be going through the most horrific thing possible, and that could be very painful. There could be tears because of it, almost unrelenting tears because you could be going through so much despair. But because the Lord God loves you even personally so much that he became a man and died on the cross in your place, that should get you like, man, he, he came for me, Paul said, the chief of sinners, so we could know, amen, that we too could be saved. Jesus said, Jesus prayed for you. You know that? He prayed in John 17. I'd only pray for them, meaning his apostles, but those who in the future will believe in me through the word they preach. Boom, it's come to us. He prayed for you. Amen. And the Bible says he ever lives to intercede or pray for you. Amen. So he died for you. He became a man so we could be saved. He died on the cross to save us. And he's forever interceding for us. He loves us. What a, he ever makes intercession for us. So it's amazing that we have this awesome Savior. Number five. There was a wicked man who had a reputation for being quite the builder. <laughs> as the fairy, look at the, look at the pyramids. A lot of the pharaohs were known for building more than just about anybody on the planet, right? And uh, Pharaoh... He uh, made these huge, uh, had these huge building projects. Well, when Jesus came into the world, there was another guy who was a leader who had huge building projects named Herod. Herod was voted by the Roman Senate to be king of Judea. And they felt he would be a good liaison between the Roman Empire and the Jews because he was half Jew and half Edomite. And remember what the Edomites tried to do to the Jews, exterminate them. So it makes sense. You can read, you can understand that God is so powerful. So Satan's got his man in there, right? And so forth. But it's interesting because Herod, man, when you go to Israel, if you go on any of our Israel, Israel trips, we've had five or six of them. I've had maybe one or two without the fellowship. I don't know how many, a couple, because I was asked to speak by Ted Walker there and Linda at the pro-life uh, Thing. People came from around the world to that. I was able to share there as uh, one of the speakers, but I was also there because I did a, uh, a spoke at several churches. Went there with the Calvary Chapels years and years ago. It was like four or 500 people there, you know, Chuck Smith, all those guys. And when they all went home, I was able to speak at a number of churches there, a speaking tour that Ted had set up, which was a blessing. But I was happy later after that trip to bring the fellowship a number of times. And one of the places that many of you have been is Caesarea Maritime, right? Not Caesarea Philippi, where you have the gates of Hades, where Jesus spoke about the gates of Hades, and you have this huge uh, 
cave, man, and the, 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 the niches there for the false gods, including Pan, right, uh, and so forth. But Maritime's right there on the coast. And if you've been on the coast there, there's all these what? Remnants of what? Incredible buildings. I mean, you're like, I'm not, I'm not talking about just right there. I mean, you're all going down the coast that are still there to this day, most of them built by, guess who? Herod. He was quite the builder as well. In fact, you've heard of Masada. Some of you have been on Masada. That's where many of the Jews held up and were secure for quite a long period of time. And the Romans had to build an encampment around them because they couldn't get them down. And there was a mass suicide. Masada, when the Romans finally got up there, uh, that's where Herod would hang out with the Roman leaders. And he had that built for them. So he could hang out with them in his place of safety. And... Uh, he built Masada, still there. We visit there. The Herodium he built. Uh, of course, uh, he built the second temple, guys. When you read about the temple in the Gospels, that's Herod's building. And he spared no expense. And it's interesting when you think about it. Remember the pharaohs? Remember during Moses when he was a bit older? What happened? You know? What was going on with the pharaohs? Remember the building project was costing Israelites their lives? He upped the, you know, wanted twice the, or a lot more of the produce from their building. Well, what was happening with Herod's building projects? The Jews' taxes would have to go way up. They're already paying to the Roman Empire, but then now they got to do what Herod wants to do. So a lot of people hated Herod because they had to work harder to pay. Their tax money went a lot less, so you have to work harder. Isn't that interesting? Just thought about that parallel this morning. I thought, wow, the taxes would have had to go way, be a lot harsher. Now, no wonder when you go through the Gospels, you read that there was such hatred toward the tax collectors, amen? Because they were like Herod. They were Jews that were sold out to the system and cared more about money than the people. So you have these very, very interesting, uh, you know, parallels. Herod's like, you know, he's like the villain of the first, I mean, Herod's got a, when you look at the Christmas story, he plays a really wicked part. He's like the villain, you know, on a physical human level. Of the, Satan was the ultimate villain there uh, of, the, of the first Christmas there. And he was a brutal guy. He, he makes the Scrooge look like a really sweet guy when the Scrooge was at his worst, right? Like Pharaoh, uh, he increased the workload of the Israelites if they were to pay their taxes. Number six, Pharaoh, Pharaoh tried to wipe out all what? Israeli babies. Sound familiar? That's what happened. Pharaoh tried to wipe out all the Israeli babies. In chapter 1, verse 22, it says, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. Going after not just the babies. We could have actually split this into two. But we'll make it one. It wasn't just the babies, but it was the baby What? trying to kill all the baby boys. All that were born were supposed to be thrown and drowned in the Nile River of the Israelites, the Hebrews, okay? That's quite amazing. Now, Herod was so brutal, okay? I mean, when, I mean this guy was so wicked, he had his first wife, Miriam, killed. He murdered, had three of his sons killed. Three of them. One would be bad enough. This guy was a wicked guy because he was so lustful for power and so paranoid about one of those sons taking his throne in the future. That's why he feared 
Jesus. We heard there was a special son born that was prophesied. Isn't that amazing? Think about it. Pharaoh was killing the little boys, right? Herod's having the little boys killed. In fact, go to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. And when you get there, just go ahead and pick it up at the top of the chapter. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now the Magi are coming from the east. They're coming a long way, by the way. So many believe this could be like, you know, eight, nine months later or so, or even more, uh, when these Magi show up. And they were familiar to one degree or another with the Hebrew prophecies, the Jewish scriptures. Okay? Just like today, people have different people's religious books. Uh, we do know uh, also that there is a prophecy from someone else that lived in the East named Balaam, a prophet. He started out as a true prophet of God. He even made very accurate prophecies. But it says he forsook the straight way and he turned away for, for gain, financial gain. Remember, Balak hired him to try to curse the Israelites. But every time a curse tried to come out of his mouth, He'd prophesy some blessing, and Balak kept getting ticked off, like claps his head. What are you doing? What's coming out, you know? Well, guess what, man? Uh, Balaam had a prophecy about a star, a superstar, a star that would come out of Judah, and the scepter, the kingship coming out of Judah, and the star. Interesting. Also, there was, some, there was another prophet that lived in the east. He lived in Babylon. His name starts with a D. Do you remember his name? Daniel. Daniel. Amen. And all the magi, these are magi, their jobs were, jobs were in left jeopardy because they could not prophesy what the king's dream meant. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar was really smart. He said, I'm not even, I don't want them to come up with some highfalutin saying this is what my dream means. I'm not even telling them what my dream was. Tell me what my dream meant. Well, that's what no, I'm not telling you what it, what it was. You tell me. And Daniel, you know, prophesied. And Daniel is such a heavy book. But Daniel prophesied, uh, you know, we know about the star. We know about the scepter. We know out of the line of Judah. Daniel prophesied when the Messiah would come before the destruction of the temple. Right? And Daniel prophesied because the angel gave him wisdom that there'd be 77s, right? And they were in captivity. I don't have time to get totally into it. But they were in captivity in Babylon, fulfilling a 70-year disciplinary prophecy that came out of Jeremiah. Then when you read the book of Daniel, you'll read that Daniel even quotes from Jeremiah, prophecy that they're in bondage because of their sin. Well, that 70 years was about up, right? Or had been up. And he's like, Lord, what's going on? And the Lord told him there'd be 77s, right? And the Babylonians were taken over by the Persians, right? And it's, it's interesting because, uh, or I should say by Artaxerxes, right? And uh, it's really by Cyrus and, and, you know, the leader of Persia. And then Artaxerxes, when you read the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 2, Nehemiah is the cupbearer. This is after what happened after they're delivered from Babylon. And he's a cupbearer to the king, you know? And you, you drink the wine a little bit and give it to the king, you, t you know? Make sure it's not poisoned. Well, Alexander, he looked really peaked, you know. Daniel was like, looked like pale, peaked, whatever. And the king's like, I got to make sure he's okay, man. What did he just drink some of my stuff? 
I don't be, why are you so forlorn? Why are you so down, Daniel? I love it because Daniel prays at that point. And uh, it says he prayed, you know. Ours actually probably didn't see him pray. He just sought the Lord. And that's a good example to us. Be always praying, guys. Situations, you know. And he said, you know what? <laughs> My city, Jerusalem, it's in shambles and so forth. Well, he makes a decree to send uh, Nehemiah back with a bunch of letters and recommend, and basically makes a decree to rebuild Jerusalem. Why is that significant? Because the angel said to Daniel prior to that, after the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, there will be 69 sevens and the Messiah will be cut off. 69 sevens. That's 483 years. Uh, the Greek word, or the Hebrew word there is Shabua. Shabuim. Im is plural in the Hebrew. So you got the 69 Shabuim. 69 sevens. 69 weeks. This is heavy when you think about it. You get your brain around it. It's like we should get so excited about this that after 69 sevens, 483 years, Shabuah would refer to a year, uh, like our word decade would be 10 years. A Shabuah would be seven years. So 69 Shabuah or Shabuim would be 69 sevens, which would be 483 years. Um, and now Shabuah could refer to a, like a decade could also refer to, uh, you know, decade of years, right? Or decade 10 of something else. But like when you see the word used in chapter, in the book of Genesis toward the end, where Jacob must serve for a Shabuah, it referred to a what? Period of what? Seven years. So 483 years after the decree to rebuild what? Jerusalem, Messiah would be cut off. Historians put, they don't know exactly the date, but most historians put the uh, date where this decree took place in secular encyclopedias around 445, 444 BC. Now there was 80, there was, now check this out guys, you have 360 day years. You have to do the math and I don't have time to get all into it other than give you the sketch of it. You can check it out. We have details on our website. Now it's interesting because when you go to the book of Revelation and you look at this seven year period, you look at, they're showing, it shows the second half of the seven year period which is 1,260 days. So it's, 30, it's 12 30-day months. Those are prophetic years, okay? And we know it's referring to Daniel because it's referring to Daniel's uh, second half of the week. For, it says 42 months, 1,260 days, you know, three, a time, times, and half a time, a times one year, times, that's two, that's so one plus two, that's three and a half a time, that's three and a half years. That's 42 months, that's 1,260 days, and so forth. So if you multiply... If you multiply 483 times 1260, and you go from 445 or 444 BC, it brings you to 32 or 33 AD. It's right there in Daniel 9. Daniel 9 was written long before Jesus. It was in the Dead Sea Scrolls they found it, right? It's written a couple hundred years or so before Jesus. Or, or, you know, a lot of it was written before that, but buried, I should say. Prophecy. We could trust the Lord Jesus Christ as being a fulfillment of those prophecies. And then it says in the book of Daniel that guess what? The Messiah will be cut off. It doesn't just say the Messiah will come. It says he'll be cut off, a term used for execution. Wow! Think about that. The Messiah will be cut off. And then guess what it says? Then it talks about the temple will be destroyed. What happened after Jesus was crucified to Herod's temple? 
that big building project, which is the biggest of all his building projects, that's the one thing you won't see. <laughs> when you go there, you'll see the Temple Mount. You'll see the Western Wall, the remnants of the foundation. But Jesus said, not one stone will be standing on another. And that happened just under 40 years after Jesus prophesied that. But it was prophesied hundreds of years before in the book of Daniel. And that the Messiah would be cut off, killed, put to death, put to death, before the destruction of the temple. That's why if you're witnessing to Jews, you could say, well, see these 69 sevens? Yeah, well, well, how do you know that means Jesus for sure? I mean, yeah, it looks like it's right around when he died, but, but you say, hey, who else? Because whoever it is has to come and be cut off before the temple's destroyed. You with me? Amen? And they're saying, and by the way, why am I talking to the United States? Why did the Jews get scattered all over the world after that? Why did God do that? Right? Amen? So there's great ways to, uh, I mean, think about this. It's quite amazing. So you have the, the star, right? Uh, you have what is said by Balaam in the east. You have what Daniel's prophecies. And those prophecies, by the way, do you think these guys were paying attention to some of his prophecies or Daniel's prophecies? Theirs weren't coming to pass. So there's two of the ways. And then you could also look at Isaiah chapter 60. Let's go there really quickly. Keep your finger maybe in Matthew chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 60. Go ahead and pick it up at verse 1. Arise, shine. Speaking of stars. <laughs> Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light. Did the Magi come to him when he was born? From the east? Yes. And kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes round about and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar and your daughters will be carried in their arms. Then you will see the radiant and your heart will and be radiant and your heart will thrill and rejoice because of the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. A wealth from the nations will come to you. A multitude of camels will cover you. That's interesting. Yet the young camels of Midian and Ephah, all, who's, uh, all from Sheba will come and they will bring gold. Oh, interesting. And what? frankincense and will bear good news to the praise of the Lord. Now, I believe there's a double prophecy going on there. There's the prophecy of Israel's ultimate regathering, but that ultimate regathering happens only because of Messiah, right? Paying for the sins of the people, right? So there's these prophecies. Now, back to chapter 2 of the book of Matthew. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, verse 1 of Judea, and the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, some believe this is a planetary alignment, kind of like we had last year. It was earlier this year. A couple of planets had aligned, uh, and they believe two or three planets aligned back then at some point to astronomical phenomena back then. Uh, I personally don't know that that's what was, is being referred to here because it speaks of this star moving over where Jesus had been, uh, where he was actually. Now, this is months later after the birth, keep in mind. So it's probably not the manger now. So when you see the three wise men with the shepherds at the manger, that's not really how it went down, okay? This is sometime after that. He's probably at home by now, right? Right? So 
So you kind of take the three wise men if you have a manger scene and kind of move them further back. They didn't get there yet, okay? So, uh, but what's interesting is what's going on there is quite phenomenal because it talks about how this star moved. These planets don't move like that. And if there was a, a star way above head, it would be kind of hard to navigate, but I believe it could be referring to an angelic entity, which are called stars in the scripture, or it could be referring to the glory of God, amen? Which I personally believe it was very likely the glory of God because he was conceived, right? by the Holy Spirit, and the glory of God led them in the, in, at night as well in the Exodus, right? And I don't know for sure, it doesn't say it. So it's all speculation, but it very likely was the glory of God that led them, okay? It's a strange phenomena. They have these prophecies to a degree, and then all of a sudden there's a strange phenomena. These are magi or astrologers, and God says, okay, you're a cult, God's are not going to lead you to me. Okay, I'm going to show you something real intangible since you're looking up at the stars, and they see this new phenomena, perhaps, and they begin to follow it and say, this fits these prophecies. I think that's what's going on there. Verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So they want to ask this because they don't just know that there's this, this star. They also know about the, the meaning to a degree that he's supposed to be king of the Jews. For we saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, and by the way, they came to worship him. Jesus is God in the flesh. He was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. So Herod was troubled, all Jerusalem with him. Gathered, so this must have been quite a scene. And by the way, it wasn't necessarily three wise men. It could have been 20, right? 25, 35. We don't know. There's quite a disturbance. It's like, whoa, could have been a lot of them. Because there's gold, frankincense, and myrrh are gifts given. People say, ah, three gifts, three guys. Hey, guys, if a bunch of guys are together and they get some gifts, they usually just get a few and it represents all of them. Could have been a lot of guys, you know. I'm, I'm just saying, right? Verse 4, gathering together all the chief priests, and, and they're quite amazing gifts, so. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, uh, he inquired. He gathered them together, right? And he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. Where's he supposed to be born, this Messiah? I want to know, you know. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. By the way, there's prophecies that talk about him, for instance, here, will be born in Bethlehem, amen? But there's also prophecies in Daniel that he's coming in the clouds of glory, amen? That shows you in the Old Testament prophets, they were confused, that is, not the prophets, but the Jewish leaders, because there's two different comings of, this, of the Messiah. One in Bethlehem where he's born, and one in the clouds of glory, as a son of man, who will set up his reign and have an everlasting kingdom. How does that fit together? And they surmised, oh, this must mean, maybe this means there's two messiahs. The Jews actually believed before Jesus came, maybe there's two messiahs. Messiah ben Joseph, Messiah ben David. I just talked about this recently in another study, so I won't spend much time on it. But Messiah ben Joseph, since Joseph suffered, he would, these suffering servant messiah pictures must be a messiah that's going to suffer. And this reigning king messiah must be a king, so one's Messiah, Ben, or son of Joseph. And then the other, Messiah, Ben, David, Messiah, son of David. So there's a Davidic conquering king. And there's also one who will come and suffer. And guess what? Which one do you think they wanted to come? The Jews, when they were under the Roman heel of oppression, under Pax Romana. Which one? They wanted the conquering king to whoop the booty of the Romans. Where? Come on, man. And that Jesus wasn't fitting the bill. But guess what? It wasn't two different messiahs. It's what? 
One Messiah, two comings, amen? In fact, Hebrews chapter, Hebrews, Hebrews, to the Hebrew Christians, chapter 9, verse 27, 28 says, uh, there's a point of man, it's a point of man once to die, but after this, the judgment. And he appeared the first time in reference to our sin, because he came to die for our sins. And it says he will appear a second time. Not second, third, fourth, and fifth time. A second time in reference to our salvation. That's our final salvation, amen. He that endures the end shall be saved. So we look forward to a second coming. This was his first coming, and he wants to know where he's going to be born, and they knew where the Messiah was supposed to be born. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, Judah. Remember, the star would come out of Judah, according to Balaam, way back in, uh, way back in uh, Genesis. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. By the way, Moses was a shepherd. Jesus is a good shepherd. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. So stick with his birth. Okay, but there's so many parallels. Verse 7. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the, for the child. And when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. This guy ruled for 37 years. That's far longer than most guys rule because he was politically savvy. He was especially wicked, and he snuffed out the competition. Verse 9, after hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went before them. It what? Went before them. It's not just a normal planet or star, guys. I don't believe. I mean, by the way, if you're seeing a star, like a star star, right? Go, moving before you. That doesn't really, I mean, it'd be so high up, it'd be hard to ascertain what's, where it's leading you specifically. It sounds like it was probably quite lower and it was probably the glory of God. So, and by the way, the word star, I said, has, a, a, has broad meanings throughout scripture. So it says, when they saw the star, now, verse 9, and after hearing the king, they went their way in the star, and it says, she moved before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Seems like it disappeared for a little bit there and then appeared again. And I think this is because God's specifically bringing these wise guys there. Verse 11, after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And that's all heavy, and I've taught on that before. I wish I had time to get into that, but I don't. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now, why were they warned? Because Herod wanted to what? Snuff out all the kids, right? He wanted to... Stuff out all the kids. Verse 13. Now, when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for him, the child to destroy him. Verse 14. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. Okay. Now it's interesting because we have these very, very interesting parallels 
Pharaoh commanded the people, Old Testament, with Moses, every son who is, not, uh, 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 who is born, you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. Well, look at verse 16 here. Look at verse 16 of Matthew chapter 2. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. It's a really, really wicked guy, guys. And you have all kinds of people killing babies today because they want more wealth in their family or they want more power or whatever it is. And Herod was an incredibly wicked man. He's slain all the boys under two years old, trying to ensure that this Messiah, the Savior, will not be born. It's kind of interesting, huh? He believed that there was, this is what is so shocking is you can show people the truth and they'll claim to deny the truth, but they'll navigate their lives based on what they deep down know to be true often. And he knows that this king has been born. And he's under the power of Satan seeking to snuff, snuff his life out. By the way, this leads us to uh, number seven, and that is that God delivered Moses from Pharaoh's hand. Amen? Also, we're seeing number seven, God the Father delivered Jesus from whose hand? From Herod's hand. And he sends him into Egypt. So go to Revelation chapter 12, kind of a peculiar place to maybe go in a lot of people's minds, but it's a, to me, it's a passage I always think of when I think of, or often think of when I think of this incident when the Lord saved him, is Revelation gives you the bigger picture so often. And in chapter 12, it tells us about future things but it backtracks a little bit to the past of how God has already been working with his people. Check out chapter 12, verse 1. A great sign in heaven. Uh, uh, now keep my John's caught up into heaven, right, to see the future on the Lord's day. Uh, and he says, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Wow. Verse 2. And she was with child. And she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Now, Roman Catholics say this is Mary, okay? This is not Mary, okay? Uh, it is going back in time, but it's not specifically speaking of Mary. How do we know that? Because the book of Revelation has three to 400 different allusions to the Old Testament more than any book in the New Testament. It's the Omega book, right? Alpha, Alpha. Omega. So last book, God intended to be at the back of the canon. Wow, what's going on here? Well, you say, where is this found? Where is this imagery used before? And we say the book of Revelation, which we have uh, extensively, uh, and we would be in chapter 21 today, if not for a Christmas message, but we're still in chapter 12. Uh, it's interesting when you think about this is is you go and you say, where's the symbolism used other places in the scripture? And how does it make sense and line up with what's going on here? Well, in the Old Testament, when you go to Joseph's story in the book of Genesis, the last 14, 15 chapters of Genesis, huge part has to do with Joseph's life, who is also a picture of Christ. Amen? He's rejected by all of his brothers, the 12, remember the 12 sons that were born to Jacob? They become the what? the 12 leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, he's one of the brothers that's born, but he's a special brother, specially favored, right? 
coat of many colors, rejected by the other brothers. Sounds familiar. That's what happened to Jesus by the 12 tribes when he came, right? And he was rejected. He was thrown in the pit. He was, they, they were going to kill him. Jesus was thrown in the pit. The Jews tried to kill him. But then they hatched a plan. And Judas gave money to the scribes or received money from the scribes to betray Jesus. Not Judas, but Judah. It's a Hebrew name for Judas. Betrays or hatches up a plan. Let's sell him to the Gentiles. Joseph's given over to the Gentiles, just like Jesus was given over to Gentiles. Jesus, after he died, rose to the right hand of the Father, just as Joseph rose to the right hand of Pharaoh after he went to Egypt. Joseph gives bread to the entire world. Everybody's in famine. Jesus, we take communion at the end of the service. He's the bread of life, and the bread goes to the Gentiles. The Jews didn't recognize Joseph at first, right? Rejected him, right? Then what happened, guys? Then they were starving in the famine. They finally humbled themselves and went to Egypt. They needed help, and Joseph unveils himself. They see the one they pierced, and Joseph begins to weep. When the Jews come to the point where they can no longer rely on the United States and NATO and the forces of this world, when their eye turns against them, Zechariah 12, the nations will turn against them, it says. God will protect them. And it says the deliverer from, will come. They'll see the one they have pierced. It says that in Zechariah 12. It says they'll weep. The 12 tribes will go apart and weep for him as they weep for an only son, right? And they'll see the one they pierced. Is that, it's all a blow mind. And it's just all a picture of Jesus. But guess what? Why were the brothers jealous of Joseph? Oh, we got the coat of many colors. Special coat. Remember, of Jesus, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He was favored in some way. Well, what was going on there? What was going on there? What? That was part of it. But guess what? He had a dream he shared with them. Do you remember the dream? There were 12 stars and the sun and the moon. And they what? They all bowed down to him. They freaked out, man. They were... They got upset. Even his dad was like, we're all going to bow to you? Well, fast forward a little bit, and they all bow to Jesus, the whole family, right? All the brothers up there in Egypt, like, because he's working with Pharaoh. God's used him through miracles to rise him up to that power, just as Jesus did miracles. Amen? And all the brothers, we're about, you know, they're upset because he has these dreams. Who does he think he is? Well, they were pretty upset with Jesus when he came too, huh? Their descendants, the 12 tribes of Israel. It's all really, really powerful. So you have these stars and the sun and the moon bowing down before him. Prophetic picture in the book of Genesis of his family bowing down and acknowledging that they need him, just like the Jews will one day in the future see him when they pierced and bow down before him. But the 12 stars, the sun and the moon, who do they represent in Genesis? Israel. Jacob sons. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. His 12 sons are 12 tribes. The fathers of 12 tribes of Israel. Right there, all oh, boom, right there it is. It's Israel. So when you get to Revelation chapter 12 verses 1 and 2, not very hard to interpret when you look at the Old Testament. You have this woman because the Messiah, the star that was to come out of Judah, was to come out of Judah. Amen. And the woman, Israel, Jesus came out of Israel, was born as the Messiah. Verse 3. 
Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, and his tail swept a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, that's Israel, not Mary, who was about to give birth so that, she, so that when she gave birth, he might what? Devour her child. Think about that. Satan was behind the scenes working. This is what's so heavy, man. Remember, the prince of Persia in Daniel is a demonic entity that uses the king of Persia in that kingdom. There's different entities that work over different uh, principalities and powers that have different types of authority. Well, Satan, who was Satan trying to use to kill Jesus when the woman gave birth? When the Messiah came out of Israel? Herod, okay? So we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against what? Principalities and powers, the spiritual forces are at work, but God always checkmates the devil. Chapter 12, verse 3, then another sign appeared in heaven, okay? And we read that, uh, he, verse 4, his tail swept, he tried to devour the child, verse 4, verse 5, and she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, Jesus coming, guys. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Wow. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for how long? 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. That's future. That's not Mary. Okay, Mary's not still alive. Catholics say that she was, the, the assumption is, she had this assumption where she ascended to heaven as a sinless being you know, which is a new Catholic doctrine, by the way. It was devised in the uh, 18, it was accepted as truth in the 1800s. 1800 years, you know, that's, that's about 1400 years after the Roman Catholic Church started. That became their doctrine, that Mary was sinless and ascended to heaven. So th it doesn't make sense that, so they don't even believe Mary's gonna be hiding in the wilderness for 42 months. It's not that about Mary, okay? It's not about the woman in the wilderness, is Israel. Amen. Then Satan goes after Israel, tries to destroy her. And then if you go to the very last verse of chapter 12, it says, So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of who? Jesus, that's us. Okay. We're heirs of Abraham through faith, it says in Galatians chapter 3 twice. So we're children of God through faith. We're heirs of Abraham through faith uh, in Christ. We don't replace natural Israel but we are children of Abraham through faith, it says, Gentile believers, amen. So it's quite amazing when you look at this whole thing that's going on here. It's pretty heavy. By the way, number eight, go back to Matthew chapter two now. Number eight, when I was like through the first five in like five minutes, you're like, what in the world? Well, now we're just at eight. But uh, number eight's a pretty quick one. Uh, Joseph spent his childhood where? In what country? Egypt, right? Where did Jesus spend his childhood? Go back to Matthew chapter 2, right? Verse 12. And having been warned by God in the dream, they returned here. The Magi left their own country by another way. Verse 13. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord, uh, not the angel of the Lord, by the way, because it's an, just an angel of the Lord here, appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, no definite article there, said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt 
and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Verse 14, so Joseph got up and took the child and his mother and while he, uh, it, was, it was still night and left for Egypt. Verse 15, he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. That's a prophecy from Hosea, which is really heavy when you understand the picture and the typology there, but that has to do with Jesus being a bit older in the future now uh, when he comes back out of Egypt, or I should say it has greater implications than we have the breadth of time to spend here in this message, and that will probably be in my next message. It's really heavy typology right going on there too as well. So all this is quite amazing. Nine, Moses was adopted. Now, who adopted Moses? Remember, to save baby Moses, what happened? He was put in the basket, floated down the Nile River, right? One of Pharaoh's daughters sees him, plucks him out of the Nile, and adopts him. Isn't that quite interesting? Jesus was also what? Adopted. Now, he was born of Mary, a virgin, but was Joseph the natural father? No. He was also adopted. Isn't that interesting? Very obvious. Does anybody else love this kind of stuff? I just love this kind of stuff. So it's interesting. Exodus chapter 2, verse 16 says, The child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and became her son. And he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, Because I drew him, I drew him out of the water. And interesting him out of the water. Something else that's going to happen with water later, but that could another heavy thing that, that they're going to be drawn out of the water. Jesus came up out of the water. He came up out of Egypt. There's a lot going on there, not time to get into. Uh, but it's interesting because Joseph was Jesus's adoptive father. Number 10, last but not least, Moses, his birth was a picture of the virgin birth. Think about it, guys. Okay? He's living in this uh, new home. And he's supernaturally there. Not naturally. God, by his orchestration, orchestrated this to where all of a sudden this woman who didn't have her own baby, she couldn't even have a baby. It's kind of interesting to find out what's going on there. Maybe that's why she wanted this baby so much. Because Mary was a virgin. She couldn't have a baby. And all of a sudden, Pharaoh's daughter has a baby supernaturally not through her womb, but delivered to her, right? Mary can't have a baby. She hasn't been with Joseph yet. She's pregnant. It's a picture of a supernatural virgin birth. In fact, we read in Isaiah seven fourteen of the Messiah, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Roman, or Matthew chapter 1, if you're there, go to verse 18. Matthew 1, 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed or engaged to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Wow. But when he had considered this, behold, 
An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is, the Holy, is by the Holy Spirit, or of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save or will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin, but kept her a virgin, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Kept kept her a virgin until Jesus was born. Catholics don't understand that. They think that she's still a virgin to this day. And it even mentions his brothers and sisters throughout the Gospels. You know, that's because Satan always wants to divert us from putting Jesus first. He always wants to put up these other gods and goddesses in our lives. Don't do it, man. Stick to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen? Now, this is amazing. Are you with me still? There's 10 prophecies through just Moses related to his birth. So sometimes people say there's X amount of prophecies about Jesus, a few hundred in the Old Testament. And some people say, ah, you really think there's that many? I'm like, it's way off. It's thousands, guys. I'm just, we're just looking at his birth in Moses. When you consider typology, I'm convinced it's in the thousands. Because I've looked at so many of the personages, characters, the events that are prophetic and have so many prophetic aspects to them which multiply the, the, but just right now, just looking at his birth and his, to his adolescence, we're looking at 10 prophecies. And I'm sure there's some angels going, you've missed a few, but hey, it's good. You know, hopefully it's good. You know? uh, but it's interesting, guys, here, because go to Hebrews chapter 3. Because there's ways that Moses could never be like Jesus. Why? Because he's a mere man. We could talk about other aspects of who Moses was. He was meek, right? Meekest man on earth, Jesus was coming to me, all of you are, you know, we're related for what? He says of his character that he's meek and lowly, right? All these different things. But he's not quite like Jesus in certain ways, not even close, because in the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, look at verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, he was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in all his house. He's writing to Hebrew Christians who are being tempted to go back to the temple. The temple hasn't been destroyed yet and being persecuted by other Jews to forsake Christ. And he's warning them, don't go back to Moses, the law. Don't go back because that Moses was prophesying about Jesus. And he's here. So he says, he, or he had come. He was faithful to him who was appointed him as, as Moses was in all his house. Verse 3. For he has been counted worthy, that is Jesus, of more glory than Moses. How much more glory than Moses, Lord? By just so much as the builder of the house has more glory than the house. What are you saying, Lord? Verse 4. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is who? God. Jesus gets more glory than Moses because he's the builder of all things. He's God. Chapter 1 talks about the Father says to the Son, you made the heavens and the earth you know, and so forth. Show this to Jehovah's Witness at your door. They're not used to seeing these verses. Wow. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you right now. 
The Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Listen to this. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Moses couldn't bear the sins of the people. He couldn't handle all their counseling requests. That's why Jethro, his father-in-law, had to appoint 70 to help him. He couldn't bear their sins, could he? It says, no one, right after it says, a law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Moses couldn't even get into the promised land. He couldn't lead them into the promised land. He hit the rock twice, right? The first time water came out, that rock was a picture of Christ. All these were pictures of Jesus, but Moses was a picture of Jesus. He couldn't get in the promised land. He couldn't get them in the promised land. But guess what Jesus does for us? He gets us into the promised land. Amen? In fact, Jude chapter 1 verse 24 says, Now all glory to God, who is able to keep you from falling away and will bring you with great joy, will bring you with great joy into the glorious presence with, uh, without a single fault, because you're forgiven by his blood. Amen? Jesus brings us into the kingdom, amen? Something Moses couldn't do. In fact, guess what? Moses couldn't get in himself. And then God used his protege, his successor, whose name was what? Joshua, whose name is what in Hebrew? Yeshua. Jesus. Joshua wasn't Jesus either, but he's another picture of Jesus. Moses couldn't get him in and he's going to say, you know what, Moses? I want to use another guy to be a picture of me getting, my son getting you guys in. <laughs> amen? Blow mine. Okay. God is amazing. He is amazing. Hebrews 2, the last scripture we look at, verse 1. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? after it was at first spoken through the Lord. It was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Brothers and sisters, the Savior is born. The prophecies, and we're just touching on an infinitesimal fraction of them, but they're blow mind, amen? Prophesy through Moses that he would be born, amen? And how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It's only through him and his shed blood on the cross because Moses didn't die for your sins, amen? But 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the, uh, chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried and then rose again according to the scriptures, amen? And Paul said in Romans 1 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it's the power of God to salvation. To everyone who believes the Jew first and also to the Greek, amen? amen? How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? You won't. And it says, there's only a certain fearful looking for a fire indignation that will consume the adversaries for those who reject the Messiah. Hebrews chapter 10. You may have heard the story. I have it kind of sketched out with this guy in the house here, you know. I, I mean, I'm stick figures and stuff. I'm like the worst drawer ever, but it helps me sometimes to remi remind me of the, you know, because if I just write illustration, story, I'll skip all like, man, I forgot to tell that one. I forgot to say that one, you know. So, but I have this guy, he's on, the, he's on his house, you know, you see a little house here, and little guy's there, and there's, a, and there's a flood, there's been a lot of flooding lately, right, but there's a flood, and he's like, needs help, but he goes, he's in his house just praying, Lord, save me from this flood, you know, I'm a strong Christian, you know, save me from this flood, 
and as the flood waters get high, you know, about a foot and a half, two feet high, a truck comes by, you know, saying, hey, buddy, come on, get in. See, your lights are on, man. I saw you through the window. Hop in, man. The, the, it's raining harder and harder, man. And he says, no, no, God's got me, man. I got faith. Drives off. Now it's up to his chest. A boat comes by. Hey, buddy, you know, come and get, get up in the boat. Same thing. Nope. See you later. And now it's like past his head, so he swims up. He climbs up onto the roof, and he's on his roof. Crying to God, why aren't you saving me? Helicopter comes, you know, drops the ladder, you know. Come on up. No, no, God's going to save me. God's got me. Come on. No, God's got me. Flies off. He drowns. Stands before God. Lord, why didn't you save me? What do you mean? Why didn't you answer my prayer? I did. I sent you a boat. I sent you a truck. I sent you a helicopter, okay? And there's a lot of people out there wanting help, going through all kinds of stuff, and knowing deep down that their sinner is not right with God. And he sent the Savior to die for their sins, amen? The evidence is over and over again found throughout Scripture and shouted from the rooftops. And people have even shared that often with them, especially if they live in the West. And they're like, I got it, I got it. But how will they escape if they neglect such a great salvation? That's not a true story, by the way, just to let you know. But this is a true story, amen? Jesus did die for you. He was buried, he rose again. And P Paul says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be what? Shall be saved. Make sure you call upon him, amen? Because the Bible said, Jesus said, unless you repent, you all likewise perish. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 30, he that's not with me is what? against me. There's no middle ground, man. You're either with Christ, you're coming to him, you're saying, man, I need to be forgiven. I know I've been rebellious in my heart. You know deep down you're a sinner. You know deep down that you're in trouble. But guess what? You are in trouble. You'll be separated from God forever because you can't get into his kingdom through the law. The law came through Moses. The law just shows you you're a sinner. But grace and truth come through Jesus, amen? Because guess what? God became a man and suffered the demand of the law, which is our lives, in our place on the cross, amen? So you could be saved. Make this, if you have not received Christ as your Lord and Savior yet, make this the best Christmas you ever had. Because the Bible says in John 1, 12, as many as received him, he gave the right to become the children of God. Amen? Receive Christ now. Receive him now. Amen? Let's pass out the cup and the bread. Praise God, what an awesome Savior we have. Kind of a different angle on the Christmas story. Christmas in, in, in Egypt. But I hope you were blessed. Uh, that we should meditate on God's word and learn it. And this has hopefully been a great learning time for us because he is all over the scripture. Jesus said of himself in the volume of the book, it is written of me, right? Moses said a prophet like unto me. We see he's a lot like Moses, but way better, amen? And the thing is, guess what? You know, all these millions of people that pray to Mary today, there's millions of people praying to Mary today. Do you think she's hearing them? No, she's not God. That'd be like millions of people praying to you. You'd be like, what? I can only... I mean, I'm a granddaddy and a daddy now. It's like, I can't hear all the grandkids at once, man. It's tough. You know, Mary's here. Millions of people know. Mary's Mary. Poor, poor Mary. Look what they've done to her. But guess what? Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved because God is with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Amen. He didn't just die for us, but now he's with us. He's not only your savior through what he did on the cross to pay for your sins, but as we continue to pass out the cup and the bread, listen to this. He's also your deliverer through your trials right now, amen? Do you see how God delivered Joseph, right? See how, you know, you see how he works, how he delivered Moses? 
That same God is your God. And he calls upon us for salvation when we cry out to him and put our faith in Jesus and repent and turn from our sin to Jesus. He becomes our Lord and Savior. But he also helps us through everything we face. He's with us always, Jesus said, even to the end of the age, amen. So this Christmas, remember, not only did he come to pay for your sins, but he's with you always, even to the end of the age. He's with you that Christmas morning because he's Emmanuel, God with us, amen. And he wants to get you through your hardships and be the strength of your life and guide and protect you in Jesus' name, amen. Father God, we thank you so much for the bread which represents your son's body that was given for us on the cross. Even as this bread we hold, Father, has been pierced, your word says he was pierced for our transgression. Even as his bruise, your word says he was bruised for iniquities. We praise you. Even as his striped, your word says by his stripes we are healed. Even as it's without leaven, Father, your word says that he was a perfect lamb of God, spotless, without blame, without sin. We thank you that this bread represents your son who said, that he is the bread that's come from heaven and asked us to feed on him. We partake of the bread in remembrance of him as a symbol of how we are trusting in him for salvation. In Jesus' name.